Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Liz Wiseman. Liz is a researcher and advisor who teaches leadership around the world. She's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Her clients include Apple, AT&T, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike, you name it, Liz has probably worked with them. Her latest book, Impact Players, takes a look at the world of work through a slightly different lens. Rather than looking at leaders, it looks at team members. And I'm delighted to say that Liz joins us now to talk about what makes an impact player. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you know, it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to it. So I um, have heard of your work previously through uh, Multipliers, the best-selling book. And, but this, the, the book I'd like to chat with you today, I've got a bit of a, I've got to be honest, a, a patchy relationship with. And, and let me tell you why before you jump off the interview. Let me tell you why. So my book was released last year. And for a brief fleeting moment, I can only imagine there was nothing else on sale that week. But for a brief fleeting moment, my book was the number one business title in in Australia and then you released your book (laughs) and and it came in it came in like Miley Cyrus might refer to as a wrecking ball and (laughs) and knocked my book off the top of the title I thought okay I need to have a look at this book and you know I kind of I kind of picked it up like not sure if I was going to like it you know how I'd feel about it but really enjoyed it but I thought yeah you needed to know that you needed to know that that's how I came to impact players Oh man, I I wrecked your moment. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was still a nice moment, to be fair. Oh like man, I'm sorry. So I picked up the book, and um, I not only read it, but also listened to it in audio book as well. And um, yeah, it really struck me as um, yeah, it was different because so many books, obviously, in that space are usually from the leader leader's perspective. And you know, for those that have not come across your book yet, you know, this is different in the sense that it's talking about the the, the team members or the, the contributors or as you put them the impact players and I'm, I'm wondering if to start with if you could just give us the backstory like the, the research because I know that you interviewed you know, lots and lots of different people did your research what, what did the research look like in order for you to then be able to put a book together that spoke about how people can make the most impact in their work oh well I thought you were going to ask me what like precipitated it because it was a bit of a wrecking ball because you know I have been looking you know, I've been looking at high contribution through the lens of a leader. Like I've spent a decade trying to really understand. I've been running around the world teaching people, here's what leaders can do that enable other people to contribute at their fullest. And so to do that, I went out and talked to people about their experience working for those leaders. You know, I I figured rather than have managers tell me, here's what I do to be a good manager. I asked people who were working for those bosses, like, what is it that this person does that brings out your very best? So, you know, I'm off doing that. And it was actually a moment where I'm I'm running a workshop like that inside of a tech company and someone kind of raises their hand. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be one of these multiplier leaders that you talk about, but you can't multiply zero. Mm. 
I'm like, what? And I, you know, I'm about, like, this was a moment wrecker for me because I'm like, oh, you know what? He's going to tell me he doesn't have good talent on his team and I'm going to have to give him, you know, like wind up and give him my spiel about, hey, everyone brings talent and, you know, your job as a leader to find it. But then he said, yeah, you know, I have to bring like the right mindsets and practices, but so do the people on the team. Like they've got to come in with the right mindsets and practices. And so it just opened up for me this question, which is, well, I know what leaders do that cause people to play at their best, but what is the role of the contributor? And and so to go and find that, I did the exact opposite of the research that I did to understand what the best leaders are doing. So I went to the managers and asked them to identify two people that they had managed or led, you know, the current environment, previous environment. And this was 170 managers. So we went to nine organizations, all top employers, and interviewed 25-ish managers in each one. And, and here's what I think was interesting. A lot of people have done this research of, well, what's the difference between high performers and low performers? I don't find that that interesting because those are really obvious differences. And what we did was go to managers and say, you know, give me two people to analyze, both of whom are smart, both of whom are talented, both of whom are working hard. Give me some person who's doing well versus someone who's having an extraordinary impact. And so I looked at the small differences between how people think and act that end up explaining why some people are working hard, but stuck versus other people who are working hard, but making a big impact and breaking through and doing work of value and making these extraordinary contributions inside teams and organizations. And um, the book is about the differences in mindsets and practices. Now, and I appreciate that, you know, we'd we'd certainly not got the time or or the inclination to unpack every single one of those but I'm wondering if there is what one or two things which when when you're asked this next question it's kind of like your go-to it's kind of like the start point and that is so given you've done that what does differentiate so if I've got a leader um, listening to this podcast now and they're going okay yeah I like that idea that I've got people who are you know they're good at their job but what should I be looking for as the difference between those with then the potential or perhaps who are making the difference? What differentiates what you refer to as an impact player versus those who are just good at their job? Oh, goodness. So you're just giving me a budget of two, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to that's overspend. Me. That's payback. That's payback <laughs> for book launch day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the first of the five big differences. Yeah. And I think it really explains in some ways all of them. It's the, the what I call the ordinary contributors, the typical contributors. What was so interesting is that these weren't kind of blah people. These were people who were great at what they did. You know, and I was so struck at how managers said, man, like this person, person one, they're they're they do their job. They do their job brilliantly. But the impact players aren't just doing their job. They're doing the job that needs to be done, which is an entirely different mentality. Um, they're, they're looking around them, figuring out what's important. What's a value here? What's the agenda of the organization? Meaning what's important? What's important right now? 
you know, what are the things that are going to matter with this, the environment that we're in? And then they point themselves toward those opportunities and problems. And it doesn't need to be their job per se. I'm not saying they um, sort of ignore their job. They don't abandon their post, but they're on the lookout for where can I be of greatest value. And they're, they're sort of rangy and flexible. Like, let me work where I'm needed. And it makes all the difference for managers because managers don't have to say, oh, 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 you know what? The situation's changed. Like this play is unfolding differently than we practiced it. Like don't just run your route, like figure out where there's action and go and put yourself in the right position. But, you know, there are five differences and really there were differences in their practices, but really what it came down to, and I, when I kind of looked at all the data and I pulled back from it, they handled ambiguity and uncertainty differently than others. And, you know, the profile for these ordinary contributors were like, they did their job, they followed direction, they were focused, they carried their weight on teams. Um, you know, they were stellar contributors in ordinary times, but when things got messy and ambiguous and uncertain, when things felt like they were out of your control, that's when the impact players really differentiated themselves and they handled those messy, ambiguous situations a lot differently. So maybe to try to come up with a short answer to it, um, the impact players move toward ambiguity and uncertainty rather than away from it. And I, you know, I live on a coast and you probably live near a coast would be my, my guess. Yep. And, you know, the visual that I get is, you know, how, what you do when you're standing at the shore and you're kind of knee deep into water, maybe, maybe up to your hips in water and a big wave comes in. And, you know, there's tends to be two strategies when kind of like a big wave comes in. Um, some people do what I tend to do, which is, okay, big wave. This feels bigger than me. Let me turn my back and get back to shore. And, you know, it never works out great for me. <laughs> you know, I, you don't run fast in sand and wet, you know, sand and in the water. I'm kind of like trudging through, but, you know, inevitably the, the wave kind of takes me and tumbles me and I get myself back up just in time for the next wave to kind of crash on me. But, you know, if you watch an experienced ocean swimmer or surfer, you know, when that wave comes in, that feels too big, something that's going to toss them, they just dive through it. And that is what impact players do. If something is messy, uncertain, chaotic, unforeseen, instead of waiting for somebody else to handle it or getting away from it. They're like, that's probably where the action is. Let me go there. And that's, a, that's the, I guess, the, the nexus between having the right mindset to do that and the skill set, I'm assuming, or, or maybe be knowing that they can learn the skill set once they're th navigating the wave. Do they need to know what to do before they try to do it? Or, or have, do they have that mindset where they're going to go, you know what, I, 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 I can't I'm back myself or the people around me to figure this out as we go? Okay, well, that's that's an interesting question, which is like, what what comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the mindset or the behavior? And I think it's our mindsets have to be a little bit bigger than our abilities in these situations because, you know, the situations that the impact players handle differently are messy problems, unclear roles, 
unforeseen obstacles, moving targets, unrelenting demands, they're all fraught with uncertainty and they tend to be like kind of on the liminal edge of what the organization knows how to do, what we know how to do, which means you've got to go move towards something that you probably haven't handled before. Like the messy problems of organizations are the ones that don't fit neatly into any one department. They don't fit neatly into any one person's job, which means they're probably like new, unknown, incoming things that we haven't had time to get our arms around and decide, oh, were these kind of problems, like this is the workflow. So they have novelty, I think, to them, which means we have to go after something we don't yet know how to do. Now, I guess by metaphor, it's like you don't send the toddler out into the big wave, but you've got to be able to go and handle things bigger than you. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I saw them doing is is practicing what I call the naive yes. And I think it's something I've done my whole career is, and I don't know what got the chain reaction started, but the naive yes is sort of the practice of saying yes to something before you decide you know how to do it. Like it's saying yes when you're intrigued, but you haven't done the analytical job of like, have I done this before? Do I know how to do it? Is it like safe to do? And I, I'm not suggesting anyone practice the naive yes and like naively say yes to everything anyone asks you to do. That's just stress and chaos. I'm saying when something comes in and it's not your job. You've never done it before. You don't necessarily have all the skill set. Like before you talk yourself out of it, just say yes and then figure out how to do it. And, and so there's, of course, some art form to this. Like you don't want to sign up for things you have no business doing, like no skill or orientation whatsoever. I think it's just about kind of having this like learning quotient built into everything that you do. I'm wondering um, then the the importance of the environment that a lot. So, uh, do people wait for permission to do that, or do impact players they'd rather apologize for stuffing up, ask for forgiveness rather than permission? Yeah. Or, or or do or do leaders need an organizations need to create the environment where it says, okay, well, if if people are going to say yes, a naive yes to something that's on their edge of of capability then the environment needs to allow them that flexibility and, and the potential that, that it doesn't come off as well as perhaps we might hope. Well, yeah, I think there's a huge environmental and leadership factor to this, which is what I had spent those 10 plus years out doing. But so let's imagine this is a bell curve. Uh, I don't, I haven't studied it. I don't know. It looks like a bell curve, but I definitely see three distinct populations in this. Like some of the people we studied, some of the people I got to write about, like they worked this way. It's this rangy, agile, assertive way of working that's very much based in this like growth mindset and this sense of agency and control, which is like, hey, I don't need to be in charge to take charge. Like no one needs to give me permission to go solve an important problem. The fact that it's important and a problem for the organization is all the permission I need. This is the impact player mentality. And some people we studied, like you could see that they did it everywhere they worked and it wasn't a function of the leader. It was just who they are and how they worked, sort of like these universal kind of impact players. 
And then I have to admit, I don't like this part of it, but I have to admit there is, there's probably, there's a population in the workplace that will struggle to work this way anywhere they work. That there's some film over the way they work that tells them don't step out. Don't, uh, there's, I think um, it has Japanese roots as saying like the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. And I don't know if that is only of Japanese roots, but I've, I've heard it there, but this sense of nope, nope, I'm going to do my job. And, and, you know, my, my experience with it is like people kind of weren't born into the world with that kind of an approach. Like if you look at little kids, they're just like, yeah, like, let me do that. I can do it. And, and they just kind of go after things joyously, but they probably have had some experience in the workplace and maybe in life and maybe even in early life that has told them, you know what, don't volunteer. You know, if someone hasn't put you in charge, don't take charge. Um, you know, just do your thing. And that perhaps that has been so deeply ingrained in their thinking that even working for the best leaders, they're going to struggle to take ownership, to step up. Um, but then there is the population in the middle, which I think is highly influenceable. And that's where good leadership comes in. You know, it. I hope it's not... Um, overly optimistic or naive to think, but I really do like based on all of my research, so many people I've interviewed hundreds of thousands of people that I've taught. My observation is that people come to work wanting to work this way, wanting to, to take ownership, wanting to do what's needed rather than what they've been boxed into doing, you know, wanting to hold on to the obstacle rather than just hand it off to somebody else, wanting work to be fun and lighthearted. They want to work this way, but the way that the environment that their leader creates really affects whether they can or not. They're sort of highly um, porous or influenceable. And, and that's where you need like contributors with the right mindset and leaders with the right mindsets and practices as well. That's back to that early conversation where he's like, Hey, I can't multiply zero. Yeah. And is that something that, so I know you said there was, the, you know, at the upper end of the bell curve, there are those who are um, perhaps that's a, you know, quite a natural tendency they have. They've not had the learned experiences perhaps of the others at the other end of the pointy end where they've, you know, they've put their head up and it's been shot off and they've learned very quickly, you know, keep your head down, keep safe, keep out of the way. If you can, can you talk to me a little bit about how uh, teams can co-create that environment, those uh, conditions? That, are there norms or whatnot where we can say, hey, if, if, you know, we want you to, to, to go looking for these challenges. What are some of the things that perhaps leaders can do and perhaps maybe there's a maybe there's an impact player listening now who who kind of feels like they're butting up against the uh, maybe a little bit of resistance or or perhaps just a lack of awareness um of their potential or their ability how can we work together to to break through these potential barriers well here's here's what i have learned studying leaders who create an environment where people can play big and you know there's a whole bunch of differences and mindsets and practices and a whole bunch of things you can do. But when I boil it all down, and it took me several years to figure this out, having written this book called Multipliers. It's like, oh, I see what these kind of leaders do. What they do is they create an environment with equal measures of safety 
and stretch. Because, you know, and so safety is uh, psychological safety, you know, which like the work of Dr. Amy Edmondson at Harvard, you know, um, intellectual safety and, you know, in some industries, physical safety as well. So they create safety where people feel like I'm trusted. I trust this person. I'm sort of seen as a human being. I, and you know, I, the people I work with appreciate what I bring. That's safety. And that's like what often companies define as like creating a great place to work, a great work environment. But I don't think that's actually a great work environment at all because like, what's it like to work for someone who's all safety? Hey, we appreciate you, Dan. You're so great. We're so glad you're on the team, but never challenges you and never asks you to do something hard. Well, it's pretty easy to settle into kind of like that contributor box of like, just do your job, wait for direction, hand off problems to higher ups and work becomes boring, a drudgery, um, reductive in many ways. But then you think of the other extreme, which is what's it like to work for a boss or in a, a culture where it's all stretch, but no safety. You've been given stretch challenges, asked to do hard things, ask hard questions, sort of like put out on that edge without this sense of, oh, okay, I, I feel like it's okay to take a risk. It's okay to speak up. You know, and that is stressful and terrifying and, and diminishing, but like the best leaders bring these two conditions together. And when people get both safety and stretch from the leaders, from the culture, it invites people to do their best work, but it also demands people do their best work. And these are the environments where people are allowed and expected to work like impact players. Obviously, the past couple of years have presented significant ambiguity. Um, if we go back to what we uh, spoke about before, you know, using the wave as the, as the metaphor, some people have perhaps and and you know even with the language that we've heard in Australia uh, from our previous government about trying to snap back let's get back to what things were like prior to you know 2020 and, and, and whatnot and obviously that I think with each passing day that's seemingly even more obviously not going to be <laughs> the case what how how are impact players responding in the moment to to you know the challenges that they're that, that are coming up as a result of the past two two years well it's it's an interesting question because i i don't know that i know so when i did the study of this particular population of 170 impact players you know i finished my interviews late in 2019 and then i started writing the book march 13th of 2020 which was exactly when we kind of shut down the workplace so i like my, the things that I have responsibly studied, I don't know that I can answer the question of how did the, this body of people respond to this particular environment, but I do know how, um, how they respond to hardship. I do know how they respond to hardship on teams. Um, I do know how they respond to ambiguity. Um, I'm trying to think of the interaction that I've had um, probably the, the, here's the thing that I, I, I know, I try not to make stuff up that I haven't like really seen in the, the research or the data, but the, when you look at the profile for these impact players, 
and you step back from it, like what you see is that they're self-managing individuals. They're not waiting for their boss to tell them what to do. They're like figuring that out. Um, They're not waiting for someone to give them a remit before they take action. And so, you know, as the world kind of came to this halt and everything looks different and we can't see each other necessarily, like these are people who are going to get things started without being told how to get them started. They're taking action. Um, the other thing I I can sort of unequivocally say about them is how they work as colleagues. So when I started these interviews, um, we had 170 people identified by their managers as these impact players. And then we went to like double click and take some of them and really kind of study them in depth. And I was pretty sure that I was going to get a few that were full of themselves. You know, they're the superstar on the team that, you know, I expected prima donna behavior. I expected a little bit of bully behavior. I expected a little bit of know-it-alls like, hey, yeah, like check me and my bad self out. Like I'm the star of the team. I'm like teacher's favorite, boss's favorite. And there wasn't a single person that fit that profile to the point where I was like, wow, I don't think I saw that. And so I asked one of my colleagues, Lauren, to go back through all of the transcripts with us. We went back through 170 and we could not find a single shred of evidence of like prima donna diva kind of behavior. These were the kind of people who were not only like beloved by their managers, they're they're sort of beloved by their colleagues. They're a joy to work with. They're fun. They're funny. They're easy. They're not the kind of people who get resented by their colleagues. They're the ones that everyone says, hey, you know what? Bring Dan into this conversation. Because not only is Dan going to help us make things happen, he's just a pleasure to work with. So like, how how does this profile of person respond when burdens are heavy on a whole team? Like they're people who help pull people out of those cycles rather than add to the misery. So the, the people who might almost caricaturely act as though they're the impact player are likely not to be. Because presumably those behaviors of arrogance, of prima donnaism, actually lessens their impact overall. Yeah, I, and I don't think they do act this way. And maybe they don't because there's just like this humility and servant leadership kind of orientation. Or maybe it's that they're really smart and effective and they know that you can't have impact if you're running around acting like a jerk. Maybe it's just selfish savvy that says, no, nobody wants to work with that person. Those people don't get invited back. Those people don't get entrusted with the biggest responsibilities. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned before, but you you said um, impact players don't wait to be told what to do. But one thing that jumped out at me um, from reading your book and something that I've shared with with leaders as much as um, team members is they're not waiting to be told what to do, but they know what's on the, the leader's priority list they know the things that are occupying their their time is that is that something that again they've been in your experience in the research there is that something that they've been deliberate about finding out or is it more they're just they have some kind you know they're just attuned to the needs of the organization because they are crossing boundaries they are going out of their lane they they just have a more big picture holistic sense of the organization Mm -hmm. Well, I think some of them might, but but not necessarily. And 
I think probably the more important question is if for someone who doesn't just have those natural antenna up, can you learn to work on what's important? Like, so let's look at those like natural native impact players. Some of them may do that, but some of them may get fed that better than other people. So if you kind of have this reputation of someone who works on what's most important, gets things done, all the way done, you don't have to be told, you don't have to be reminded, like leaders and key influencers in the organization are going to want to spend time with you. And they're going to take the um, extra time to explain, like, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what I'm working on, because they know that time is going to manifest itself in some sort of productive outcome. So they might get fed it more than other people. You know, leaders invest in them and they reinvest in them. But you don't have to have this like... um, natural empathy and awareness to do it. It's just knowing it's important. And um, I'll I'll give you um, one quick example. Um, uh, So uh, my daughter, who's kind of new to the workforce, uh, her sister-in-law, who's also new to the workforce. So this is someone who's, oh, I don't know, about 25 years old, works as a design director. She, uh, and she's an amazingly talented, sort of service-oriented kind of person um, for, for starters. But she's reading the book and she gets to the part where she's reading about, hey, you know what? Figure out what the agenda is, know what the win is, what's important now, and then work on that agenda. Like point your efforts towards that. And she was reading the book that morning or listening to it, probably as she was exercising. She goes into work, her boss mentions like, the boss's like top three priorities. And Tiffany was like, huh? that's the agenda. And maybe if she hadn't been reading the book, you know, maybe she would have taken note, maybe not. But she's like, oh, I think that's the thing that Liz was talking about. And she just wrote it down. There were three of them. She got one of them wrong. Like she got two right. The other, she kind of sort of got right. But then what she did is she's like, well, that's the agenda. Well, what would I need to do to really be working on that agenda? She works for an ad um, agency. Tiffany leads a design group. And so she goes and starts talking, um, like mapping out, here's what she could do to respond to that, those priorities. And she starts talking to her peers in the organization, what would need to happen on their broader team for them to realize those three priorities, you know, talk to some other stakeholders, what would have to happen here or there. And she just kind of maps it out. And then the next week she's meeting with her boss and she just says, Oh, here's kind of what I heard. Again, she got one of them wrong. And then she mapped it out. And she said her boss like was like slack jawed over this, like, what? Like you listened to that, you wrote it down, you then organized all of this thinking around that. And then Tiffany called me uh, probably a week after that. She just called, she was like breathless and she just was so excited to talk. She's like, Liz, my boss just called me and gave me this enormous promotion. I'm now in charge of all of that. And this race that's so big, she's like, I feel like I owe you a commission on this. And she's like, I really like want to like, and I'm like, oh no, you keep that for yourself. That's yours. But, you know, what she did is something we can all do. Like she didn't divine this. She didn't intuit. She was just paying attention for the signals. Like this person is telling you what their agenda is. Write it down. And again, you don't even have to get it exactly right. Just movement in that direction. 
And I think we all can do that. You're absolutely right. We all can. But I think one of the stumblings for that is it, and, and you touch on this really early in your in, in the book, and it, it seems to run so counter to so much other stuff that is, is you know, in books that are probably alongside yours in, in the uh, in, in, in the bookstores is it doesn't have to be something you're passionate about. <laughs> in fact, you know, it, in fact, perhaps, and this, I'm, this isn't your words, but perhaps passion is overrated in, if, if you're trying to have an impact. Um, could you just talk a little bit about, about that? Because as I said, it was one of the first kind of jar, jarring in a good way, but a jarring moment where it's kind of like, oh, that's different. Most people are telling us to find our passion and go pursue it at all costs and then, you know, we'll go and change the world doing that but you're suggesting eh, maybe just be more useful <laughs> yeah tone that back a bit so you noticed that little bit i'm glad i'm glad you noticed it and you know i am taking a countercultural position on this but i i think there's been so much bad career advice out there around figure out your passion go pursue it passionately you know like it gets odds and like there's two big problems with this orientation. One is there's a, there's a lot of people who take that advice very literally. And they're like, this is what I'm passionate about. And then they go and they inflict that on other people. Now, if you're passionate about something and you know what that is, like go start a company, you go out and change the world. But if you take an organization, like going and like pursuing your passion without paying attention to what is the passion of the organization means that you're going to be off the mark constantly. And rather than be someone who's, you know, sort of like building momentum, starting fires, you're going to be a drag on the organization. And when you talk to, you know, managers about what they appreciate and the people they entrust, it's not about people who like are pursuing their passions. It's people who are pursuing the organization's passions and figuring out what's important. And I'm not saying doing it with like no without bringing your own personality and your own personal gifts to it. It's working passionate on what your stakeholders are passionate about. You know, it's funny. Um, I can't tell you how many managers like will pull me aside and they're like, thank you for that. Because like I spend so much of my energy trying to like appease everyone's personal passions, but it's, it's a drag. I think the other thing that can go wrong with it is there's people who are like, I don't know what my passion is. And yet I'm supposed to have figured this out. And there's like all this anxiety around, oh, I'm supposed to be changing the world. It's like, you know what, actually maybe the best way to like change the world is just to walk through the world with your eyes open. Like what's needed? Where can I contribute? For me, this was also a, a personal, um, failing. And, you know, I got the proverbial brick to the head on this where, you know, I took my first job out of graduate school, all passionate about something. And I kept looking for like the opening, like, where can I do this thing that I want to do, which, you know, interestingly enough is teaching leadership. And, you know, fortunately I had a, a mentor who kind of said, Liz, <laughs> you know, like, that's great. We're so thrilled that you want to go do that, but that's not the problem that your boss is trying to solve. And he told me, he said, why don't, why don't you go, you know, here's the problem we're trying to solve. What would be great is if you could help us work on that. He, 
And, you know, I was working for Oracle. They needed technology trainers. I wanted to teach leadership. And I had no interest in being a programmer and teaching programming. But, you know, I had taken a job for a programming or, you know, a company that developed software. And and it wasn't like I was just going to go be compliant with Bob's advice because, oh, he told me, you know, this were passion. I'm like, hmm, where am I going to have the greatest impact trying to get this technology company to care about good leadership? Or am I going to have more influence by figuring out what's important and going and putting my energy there? And so that's what I did. And I became a technology instructor. And by doing it, I earned a lot of credibility and I was good at it. And people knew that I knew the technology. And so I got entrusted with bigger responsibilities and bigger, and I got a bigger job, a better paying job than I could ever have imagined. But it wasn't just, okay, now I'm in service of somebody else's passion. I earned a lot of influence to decide what we worked on, what I worked on, how I wanted to spend my time. Pretty soon I kind of had a blank check. And I got to do that work that I cared so deeply about. And then I did it with far more power and influence and efficacy than I ever would have had if I were just like, hey, everyone, this is what I care about. And I want you to care about it as well. And I dare say, and obviously there's no there's no way of knowing this, but I dare say you ended up doing what you wanted to do better, perhaps, as a result of going through that process and learning outside of, you know, l- learning other skills, connecting with other people who you might not necessarily have gravitated to. And I, I dare say that you, that gives you a better perspective to then do the work down the track. Is that fair? Or It is. I am so, like, genuinely, like, down in my bones grateful that I didn't get the job I wanted early in my career. You know, I tried to get a job working for a leadership training company, and I found the premier leadership training company in the United States. I went and kind of weaseled my way into an interview with the president, kind of explained to him what I could do and how I could help him. And I remember what he said. He's like, Liz, you seem great. But if you want to teach leadership, maybe you should go get some experience leading. And I'm like, nah, who needs that? You know, like, this is what I care about. Like, he doesn't get me. And so that's when I went to go work for Oracle. And by working on what was more most important to the company, I kept getting management responsibility and management jobs and big management jobs. And today, you know, one of the things I hear a lot is that people say, well, Liz, you're different than other academics. You're different than other researchers. I'm like, it's because I have walked many miles in those shoes. Like I've done the hard, ugly work of having to lay off like a whole division, having to, you know, like I, my empathy um, was built by going and doing that kind of work. And I would absolutely not go back and go straight into what I was passionate about. It's interesting because I'm thinking of the example you gave before with Tiffany. It's like, I, I wonder if she was immediately passionate about what the bosses put out on the agenda and yet, you know, compare that with how these she, she then called you <laughs> and perhaps the passion she uncovers or perhaps it's the passion that you know she is you know being of service of being of use having that humility I think yeah it's an interesting um, mindset I think to adopt where saying well this isn't about me <laughs> it's about others and I wonder if people can unlock a different kind of passion when they start 
recognizing that rather than thinking passion is something they can only uncover by doing stuff or or following their predestined path there's a um, an op-ed journalist uh, one of my favorite journalists uh, a man named david brooks in the united states works uh, writes for the new york times and there's a a column that he wrote so several years ago it might have been 2011 and it's called the summoned life the summoned life the summoned self it's one of those two and and he compares he kind of lays out these two ways of living life and one is like the well-planned goal-oriented life here's what i'm good at here's what i want to do in the world and then kind of laying out that logical path for what you want to do and what you can contribute. He's like, it's a valid way of moving through the world. He said, but it's not the only way of moving through the world. I, I recommend people go read his article because it's going to find be a link for it. Yeah. Way better than, than I can articulate. But then he said, there's a different path and it's actually the path many of the great leaders and influential people in the world have taken. And he calls that the summoned path where you're just kind of moving through life with your eyes open and paying attention to need. You know, this was the path of Martin Luther King. This was the path of Mahatma Gandhi. This was, um, you know, like the Mother Teresa path. It wasn't like, hey, I want to be, you know, I want to alleviate poverty. It's they're seeing needs and they're making themselves useful in the world. And And I think this is actually a more powerful path. It's what I have experienced myself. Um, and so there is there is this other way of like, this is what I care about. I'm going to go make this happen. But it's not the only way. And it may not be the most powerful way of affecting change in the world. Liz, thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure that plenty of people listening are going to be going, okay, that does sound a better book than Dan's. So how do I get hold of impact players? Where's the best place to engage with more of your work, learn, you know, f- engage with your learnings, your research? How do people uh, find you? I can't promise it's a better book. It's just another book. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me see. I, I think it's it. the book's available on Amazon, I think most all around the world. Um, there's a website, thewisemangroup.com. Um, I'll put those links in the in the show notes there. And uh, thank you so much again for your time, Liz. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Uh, well, good to talk with you and all the success in the world for your book. As I mentioned, all the links are in the show notes to Liz's website, her books, as well as the op-ed by David Brooks. Now, if you found that conversation worthwhile, as we always say, feel free to share this as far and as wide as you can in your networks. Don't forget to like the podcast, share the podcast, comment on the podcast, and of course, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen. For more information about the work we do here at Cut Through Coaching, you can head over to habitsofleadership.com. And if you want to get involved with the podcast, if you want to ask us a question or suggest a guest for future episodes, then make sure to click on the podcast page. But until our next episode, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Take it easy.